0: So, uh, thank you for staying. Uh, And the last bit of the seminar is going to be Jacqueline Baxter, uh, who says, given it's a Friday, her identity is very flexible. Uh, So I can tell you that she has worked for a long time in many and fascinating different capacities at the Open University. Uh, uh, The last two... Bits bare, particularly on today. She was a researcher on the Governing by Inspection project uh, and found more ways into the field than I ever thought were possible. Uh, and currently, she's a lecturer in social policy in the Faculty of Social Sciences. And she's going to talk about. Is it still right?
1: I'm going to talk
0: about working knowledge shifting criteria in inspection.
1: Yeah, shifting frameworks. Challenges for inspection. Over to you. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I suppose uh, changing knowledges. We've, t- we've talked a little bit about how inspect- inspection frameworks are constantly changing and how um, they're evolving all the time. So this um, became quite a, an interest for us in the project, Um, so we interviewed um, for the project we interviewed um, 60 people with contract inspectors HMI school leaders um, in education there were five case studies (laughs) in each country Um, we did documentary analysis of 300 school inspection reports in each country um, and one of the challenges that we, I think we all found with the project was the challenges, but one of the main interesting points about it was the diverse, the diverse social, economic and political backgrounds of Sweden, Scotland and England. And I think, you know, Melanie's presentation raised that point pretty well that when you're looking, and the point that Ron made earlier, that when you're looking into the di- different countries, they have different understandings of what school improvement is and what inspection means for that particular country. So the question for this paper was why do inspection frameworks um, and what counts as knowledge within them change so radically? You know, how can it be counted as knowledge one day um, and suddenly the next it's no longer relevant to that particular inspection framework? So we're looking at inspection as governing, as a governing tool. Um, And as governing's changed to become more networked and less bureaucratic, Um, more flexible interrelated, so has knowledge around governing tools and governing processes. And the changes have had the effect, we feel, of reconstituting knowledge as policy forming rather than policy informing. Um, And in terms of inspection, that implies the knowledges that are required by, produced by and enacted through the act of inspection. So we see the inspectors as in, and inspection, the process of inspection, as an enactment of knowledge. You know what, what kind of knowledge is needed in order to make informed judgments about a school's performance? What, where do we get that knowledge for? Is it from, from data? Is it from um, qu- qualitative um, observations? Where does it come from? Inspectors embody that knowledge. Um, as John said earlier, they are... The people that go into schools, they're not anonymous. They come with them. And I use a term that's used by many of the inspector trainers for Ofsted. They come with their baggage. And the baggage that they, um, that they talk about in the Ofsted inspector training is actually all that professional knowledge that comes with them when they go into a school. Now, the reason why Ofsted call it baggage is because... To them, it needs to be that context-specific knowledge that's been gained in a particular school in a particular time has to be, not eradicated, but it has to be pushed to one side in order for the inspector to do the job the way that Ofsted wants to do the job. Leave your baggage at the door, leave your schools and your context at the door, because from now on in, you're an inspector. You're no longer a head teacher in your school, in your context. So that's quite interesting, the way that they embody knowledge. And I'll come on in a little while to how that works in Sweden and Scotland. They encode knowledge to a certain extent. They decide what's relevant. And I think one of the things that's come to light, particularly in the most recent inspection, is the in the 2012 inspection um, framework for Ofsted, is the fact that they have vast amounts of data to do within a two-day inspection. They also inspect on average 50 lessons in a secondary school. So they not only have to analyse the data, but they also have to observe 50 lessons, and they also have to then go to the governors as well and assess governors, governance within the school. Um, so coming back to this kind of knowledge thing, um, formerly we had knowledge as think, quite a dominant legitimacy of academic knowledge, and I think this was personified by the old Her Majesty's inspectors in England. They were known because of their their deep knowledge of schools, their deep knowledge of education, their pedagogy. Um, it was, however, limited, and that was the one of the uh, one of the contributing factors to the reason that HMI then turned into Ofsted because in actual fact they were seen as preserving this secret garden of education whereas um, John Major's government wanted to open it up and make it a lot more transparent. Um, There was a relatively slow circulation of knowledge within these closed entities. The knowledge was circulated within schools but in a very... very um, very slow, very gradual way. Whereas now, we have such a diversity of knowledges around inspection. There's a legitimacy of, increased legitimacy of scientific knowledge, and particularly know-how from experience. A very great um, emphasis on the know-how of experience. And there again we'll see in the Scottish system this is personified through the Scottish inspectors and their knowledge of teaching and schools and in the English um, system it's being personified through inspectors that are now coming from schools and they are in service head teachers and deputy heads within um, excellent or outstanding secondary schools and primary schools. So we've got a movement of knowledge here um, which is very very policy orientated um, and very future orientated Um, there have been in england since 1992 something in the region of between 10 and 15 adaptations of the original inspection framework and over that time And in fact, Ofsted did tell us that a framework was not to be thought of as a static document. It was a work in progress. Um, But I think one of the things that we uncovered about this was that although Ofsted know the history, the inspectorates know the history of how their frameworks have evolved, Actually, that's not immediately obvious to people coming from outside of the organisation. And it's also a very difficult thing to convey to contract inspectors who may only be doing one inspection a month. So it's quite difficult to get that institutional knowledge, which at one time was held by HMI, Her Majesty's Inspectors, as full-time inspectors. It's quite difficult to then get that out to all the, of the different contract inspectors. And there are three large contractors now in England, Tribal, Serco and CFBT. At one time, there were over a 100 of these contractors when Ofsted was first set up. So that, in many ways, is why they've had to instigate such a very, very um, constraining framework in order to cascade the training and in order to provide this kind of levelling of the playing field right across these inspectorates and these providers, they've had to uh, develop frameworks which have seemed to be very, very um, static and very constraining. Then we have the diversity of actors that are producing this legitimate knowledge. Um, In Sweden now... um, they, uh, since 2011, the Swedish inspection regime has changed. Before, they employed people who, with an education background or who had been practising teachers. Now, they're employing people who are either practising lawyers or they have a background in investigative studies. Investigation... I tried to get this... <laughs> Translated, and st- I'm still not a hundred percent about it. I don't know whether you are, John, but it's sort of—it's not somebody with a PhD. It's not research skills. It's more like investigative journalism, digging. Somebody who knows how to dig right under the surface and get to the dirt, if there is any to be found. <laughs> so that's how I understand it. <laughs> um, and, uh, you're
0: okay. Constantly describes this as forensic.
1: Yes, yes. It's
0: a forensic approach to looking at the school.
1: In Scotland, um, as John already mentioned, they come from teaching backgrounds and they're being trained by occupational psychotherapists to be able to convey the information in a way that's convincing enough to make schools want to change um, as a result of their self-evaluation. And in England... um, the self-employed consultancy model of inspectors has been um, has been thought recently to be not the correct kind of model to have because they've been out of school too long. So now um, we've got in-service teachers and head teachers that are actually going in there as inspectors, but they can only continue their job as long as their school is outstanding. If for some reason Ofsted inspects their own school and it goes down a grade, they're sacked as an inspector. They can no longer inspect. Um, And I quite like this from the work of Ernest House. Um, All evaluation is a form of persuasion Um, and evaluations themselves can be no more than acts of persuasion. And this thought, and this is particularly articulated through the Scottish Inspectorate, of this thought that persuasion, the art of persuasion, is a way to convince the school to change. Um, and I think that's where we're seeing a big departure between, for example, the Swedish um, system now and the, um, and the Scottish system, is that the Swedish system are trying to impose regulatory um, requirements on schools from above and there's very little persuasion in it, whereas with Scotland, it, there's much more of an emphasis on coaxing schools to to improve. And in fact, when the inspectors go into school in Scotland, they go in always go in on a Monday, so you can always Monday's inspector day. If by Tuesday afternoon they think the school self-evaluation is doing okay, they say right. You can have us for the rest of the week, but you can have us on a consultancy basis. We'll advise you on school improvement. So they actually physically stop inspecting if they think there's no reason to anymore. But the schools keep them on for the rest of the week if they want as advisers. So there again, there's this strange sort of from re- regulatory knowledge to suddenly switching to the school improvement and advising type of knowledge. Um, and I quite like this quote. John and I have doubled up on quotes, not for the first time at presentations. <laughs> I thought at first, and this was a, um, a lead inspector trainer, I thought at first that given a set of criteria that anyone could do the job that of inspecting. Then after a while, I realised it was all down to communication skills. So when he first became an inspector trainer, an inspector, he thought that if you gave the criteria to anybody in a school, they could go out and inspect any other school, which I found to be quite scary, really, in a way. After a while, he realised that actually, if you didn't have the personal skills, the powers to persuade, then the inspection was likely to be... Thought of as less credible than than before, so this this thought of persuading and, and who who it is we are persuading, um, sort of drawing on um, Matthew Flinders' work into the roles of um, Quangos, quasi-autonomous government organisations. Um, Inspectorates have always been quite seductive to governments as a means of governing education. There are a lot of advantages as inspectorates as tools to both shape policy and also to implement it. One of the very attractive things about an inspectorate is that it actually... um, It fosters the appearance of continuity and it transcends the electoral cycle. So where governments come and go, the inspectorate remains and it remains in the minds of the public as something that is more consistent and more reliable than government. It also reduces the appearance of partisanship to the electorate as well. It distances those policy recommendations from their implementation. And it also distances from that kind of, distances from the adversarial sphere of um, party political agendas as well. Um, I think number four, I won't read them all out, um, but I think number four is particularly. interesting in view of the Scottish, Swedish and English inspectorates today. In their ability to establish a direct relationship and dialogue with the public on education and how they direct and shape this relationship via the media strategies. um, Linda Ronberg and I um, looked at the way that the media... The inspectorates in each country were actually using the media to convey their messages and to sideline the interference of any other bodies, including the LEA, including government. And we discovered that um, they were investing in media strategies that were costing absolutely millions of pounds. Um, And if you look at Ofsted today and you look at their Twitter feed, they have 50,000 followers now on Twitter. 50,000 followers who regularly chat away to them on their Twitter feed. They also have a very lively Facebook page. And they're also getting talking directly to parents, (coughs) rather than through schools, by their data system, which is online. Which is a system where, and the Swedish have the same system as well, where you actually go in to the system and you give your opinion about your particular school. And then you click a button and it comes up with these very sexy visualizations, data visualizations just like in the Guardian of where that school stands. Now unfortunately those data visualizations could be created with four parents or they could be created with 400. They still give a very very interesting impactful kind of representation of what what parents think in that school. So inspectorates are very attractive to politicians, but as we've seen recently in the newspapers, they can also be a little bit of a thorn in their side as well. Um, They're facing constant challenges, which is one of the reasons why the criteria shift so much over a given period of time. They face four challenges, principally technical challenges, which are concerned about the reliability and the credibility of their methods and their data. And if you look at the success of parliamentary inquiries into Ofsted, and there have been very many, it's one of the most um, focused upon quangos in the history of quangos, I think, Um, most of the concern is, are their methods reliable? Are they credible? Are the inspectors credible? Is the organisation credible? What evidence can we use make it will make us and our organisation more credible because the more credible they are the more useful they are to government and they're less likely to be axed. Then we have the political challenges the extent to which inspection judgments are perceived to conflate with government policy they inspect without fear or favour all three inspectorates are very clear about that and we've seen um, the engagement of lawyers in the Swedish system um, was a direct response to criticisms that the teaching inspectors, the t- inspectors with the teacher background, were far too partisan. They were far too close and they were getting far too cosy with schools. So let's send in lawyers, let's prove to everybody that we have that distance and that we have that impartiality. And now, of course, the wheel's turning full circle and schools are saying, these people have no credibility because they don't understand education. So you can't win, really. So this is the the constant challenges. The institutional challenges, the scale and nature of the distance between inspectorates and the DfE or other such organisations. And then the social challenges. Um, John was talking a lot about the effective element of inspection. And that extends, as he said, not only to those being inspected, but also to the inspectors as well. And I think one of the things about this project, going out and actually talking to inspectors and HMI, was that one of the things that struck us was the deep, deep belief and conviction that what they were doing was absolutely right. And a deep conviction that they were fighting for the rights of students. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it is very interesting to, to get down to that level and actually listen. You know, when you say to them, well, what is it that you think that you're doing? What is it that you think you're actually achieving here? How do you get your jollies? What gets you up in the morning to come and inspect? Uh, it can't be a very pleasant job. And, and it was by and large, it was this deep conviction that they were striding away, that they were waging a crusade, um, that they were going to win. And, of course, the challenge for um, for the Inspectorate is not only to maintain standards, but also to raise standards. So coming back to this kind of neoliberal project where we're constantly on a road I was tempted to say road to nowhere, but I won't. Constantly on a road to raise standards, but then the actual definition of raising standards is not quite so easy to articulate. (laughs) So, finally, just a quick look across the board at the three inspectorates um, since they were developed. Um, In England, we had Offset developed as you'd be aware, to open up the secret garden of education. It's since then taken on a vast remit since the um, Every Child Matters Act back in 2005, Green Paper in 2005. Um, it's taken on an enormous remit. Um, and it has become a very, very large organisation. Um, In 2012, as I say, they changed the framework more radically than they ever had in the past. And one of the reasons why it was changed was because they wanted to return to professional standards of inspection. And by professional standards, they wanted to create a curious hybrid between the kind of self-evaluation approach of Scotland and the regulatory approach of Sweden. Um, they wanted to, yes, they want to regulate, but on the other hand, they also <laughs> want to engage schools in the kind of professional diagra- dialogue that's going to persuade them to change. And I think partly the reason for that was, talking to inspectors, was that they wanted to repair what they saw as to be um, a pretty dire relationship with the teaching profession, um, but there was also a deep belief that if, the, if they didn't repair that relationship, then the organisation would cease to have a school improvement kind of functionality. And there was a belief across the board I think with most of the inspectors we spoke to that inspection did affect school improvement. Um, and they believed very deeply that it did. Um, unfortunately I think... Uh, In mixing these accountabilities they might be prone to what um, Jonathan Koppel describes as MAD, multiple accountabilities disorder. Um, (laughs) They're they're trying to fulfill too many tasks within one brief. The school improvement um, brief, the governor brief that Andrew was talking about um, and also the highly regulatory brief as well, the compliance kind of brief. Scotland has moved, shifted according to very much according to the politics within the country. Um, it the Her Majesty's Inspectorate in Scotland were very, very policy active at one time, um, but they were scapegoat. Again, They were accused of thought to have too much power by government. And so they were scapegoated in the 2002 examinations um, fiasco, which is where a new um, system was implemented. It didn't work very well. And Her Majesty's Inspectorate were actually scapegoated for that. So they did lose some credibility there. Um, Since then, they've centred their work around the governing narrative of the Scottish Nationalist Party, in which inspection is integrated into the way that they want to see Scotland running its public services. So this (laughs) um, self-evaluation, inspection should provide the mirror of a national perspective. So it, it doesn't stop at the inspectorate, it goes much wider than that. And if you look at the three websites, you'll see that the Scottish inspectorate is embedded within Education Scotland, which was developed in 2011, which um, makes it part of Learning and Teaching Scotland. So you have Ofsted with its very distinctive and hugely expensive website, which has got absolutely no links at all to any of the other teaching organisations in the UK. And then you have Scotland where the inspectorate is just embedded within the website. And I say that because I think it's quite a nice metaphor to think of it in that way, um, and to think of how inspection's thought of. And finally, Sweden, um, Sweden um, developed a different inspectorate called the Swedish, ins- Swedish Inspectorate in 2008. <coughs> um, there was there were there were concerns as i've mentioned before about inspector capture about inspectors that are getting too close and too cozy with um, with schools but also a huge emphasis on the international comparisons such as pisa which caused the scale up of inspections in 2011 it actually caused them to scale up some 41% so they scaled up in school inspection in Sweden 41% which is a huge hike and employed as I say um, illegal uh, people with uh, backgrounds in law and also in, um, in investigative skills and my colleagues in Sweden tell me that um, the government now are thinking that it's they want the legal inspectors to inspect teaching, but the legal inspectors don't know how to inspect teaching. So, the idea is to get a tick box, um, 20 page document with areas that they can tick to actually inspect the teaching in schools. And as you can imagine, <laughs> I don't know whether you knew about that. Agneta told me the other day. As you can imagine, it's sort of, you know, it's proving to be very, very contentious indeed to try and mix them. So we've got these we've got these changing form of knowledge forms of knowledge, changing forms of inspection, and we've got the balance between preserving a balance between market interest and public interest. And there you have that wonderful quote that John's already used, so <laughs> use it again. <laughs> and I think you know they are trying to constantly achieve the balance. And I quite like the analogy of the seesaw here because I think that's the way it very much seems to go. In the case of Sweden, it seesawed from a very developmental type of inspection um, to a much more punitive, much more compliance-based one. In Scotland, they've come to inspection as as a a school self-evaluation and autonomy, and in England, they have a, some sort of ghastly two headed hybrid form of inspection which t- tries to combine the two um, the two elements the school improvement element um, with the regulatory and I think because it was a qualitative based project it 's given us a lot of insight into How these policies actually operationalise on the ground, how these inspectors actually carry out and execute these frameworks when they're in school, and it's very, very, very challenging indeed. Very challenging. Um, So to sum up, um, we noted sort of difference between the disciplinary regime of Ofsted and the self-disciplining regime of Education Scotland and how they both align to political projects in both countries. The new processes are demanding new skills, new knowledges from inspectors in each country. Each inspection regime is suffering over the course of the electoral cycle from what John so prosaically calls performance paradoxes which I've mentioned, they emerge as organisations represents the public interest in increasingly complex and dispersed systems, trying to redress that balance all the time. <laughs> um, we have a, a difficult, difficult approaches to professionalism. I know professionalism, you raised professionalism before, and I think in terms of the professionalisation of inspectors and inspection, We're seeing lots and lots of different approaches um, to the professional inspector. And it's very interesting in the English system, the word professional in the 2012 framework appeared 40% more than in its predecessor. So they're very keen to push this discourse of professionalism. But what kind of professionalism that is, is open to debate. So finally we concluded that all three regulatory regimes do face governing problems um, and that knowledge claims on the basis of authority are not static, that they constantly evolve and by necessity they must, they must evolve in order that all three inspectorates can outlive the political regimes in which they're based. And that was about it.
0: So we have some time for questions. We have, let me remind you, a roving microphone without which your comments will be ignored. (laughs) If you don't, I will. (laughs)
2: Sorry,
1: Simon Bellamy from the University of Northampton. Um,
2: If I could just pick you up on a couple of points. Um, He said that uh, in the Ofsted
1: training that the uh, trainer said that the inspectors must leave their baggage at the door. Does that not just mean that the inspectors are expected to be objective and that it's not a comparative science in that it is an objectivity in judging the schools against the broad of criteria yes I think that's exactly what they mean um, but I think in terms of inspection I mean what is the notion of objectivity is it possible if they're getting inspectors from outstanding schools their professional identities will be absolutely super strong because they've achieved success within their school within that particular context. I think the problems come when those inspectors then go into very different school contexts and then inspect in those different school contexts. And I think when you're talking about objectivity, is anybody, is any true professional truly objective there's always a degree of subjectivity in it isn't there depending on where you've made your successes really so I think yes you're right in terms of yes that's what they are meaning leave your baggage at the door leave your own school at the door you're not in your own school now you're in somebody else's school but I think in practice well I know that in practice that's a very very tough nut to crack because they spend days in training and that's the hardest thing that they have to overcome with these new head teacher, teacher inspectors is the fact that they find it so difficult to leave their own context behind and their own very, very um, formed views of what to them is good teaching and learning. And I think this is, that's why the debate about. Not commenting on styles of teaching always fascinates me because I think, well, if you're commenting on anybody's teaching, you're immediately invoking a particular style. So uh, I think it's, yeah, in answer to your question, yes, you're absolutely right, but I think there are difficulties with that. Yeah. Keep
0: moving. (laughs)
3: <laughs> so do you think in, in your idea would it be um, um, a way to get inspectors from, to have a qualification for inspectors and don't worry about which school they come from uh, a head that requires an improvement school might make a very good inspector and uh, why why do we consider that he or she will not be a good inspector just because they are heading a school which is requiring improvement. If, they had, if there was a a national accredited course for
1: inspectors I think that's a really good point and I think you know I think the belief is that there wouldn't know quality if it got up and slapped them in the eye but I, I think I think you're absolutely right if you are if you are training inspectors to a certain standard it doesn't matter what type of school they come from they should still be able to inspect but it comes down to that persuasive element that, that persuasive element of evaluation that, that House mentions, in that they wouldn't have the cr- credibility to suggest improvements to a school if they come from a school that requires improvement. And because these inspectors don't work in isolation, I mean, um, when I was interviewing up in the North East, and they were quite frank about it. Well, we find out who's coming and if we don't like the sound of him, we're on to Ofsted and we just get him slung out. Because, uh, you know, there was very much the feeling, I'm not having that person in this school. So, there's a lot of that very local knowledge. It's not, um, it's not the depersonalized experience, or it doesn't appear to be the depersonalized experience that it purports to be, in actual fact.
3: it up that you can look at every inspector and look at the profiles. How many schools they inspected, what the outcomes were, etc. Yeah, to make it
0: even
3: harder. Yeah. Hi, thanks. I wonder what <clears throat> what came out of your data about. Um, well, why? Why we inspect? Because it seems to me that, you know, while you've got quite strong inspection regimes which batten down on schools and teachers, who, you know, anybody who's been in teaching knows how complex and difficult a job it is. Mm, mm -hmm. And people who haven't don't, basically, I suppose. Um, You know it just seems to me that while you have a nice strong inspection system it takes a spotlight away from government investment in education what you're doing is you're throwing all the blame down for any, any ills on teachers and schools and yet you know, we know that quite deliberately the, the whole uh, league tables have been changed um, and that there's, you know, people are very very pressurised in, in areas of social and economic deprivation But I I don't know whether you ask inspectors anything about how they see that aspect of it. It's it's like all the pressure coming down onto the individual teacher in the class. And that's, you know, obviously each teacher has to be of a good quality. But I see quality of teaching based around the whole system and what's invested in it. Yeah. And so, you know, you get really angry when you say, oh, we should be looking to the private sector. Well, sorry, yeah, if you've got 15 kids in your class, it's a lot easier than if you've got 30 or whatever. I just wonder what, you know, was there anything that came out of it that looked at government's responsibility as opposed to teachers and schools, as if that system is totally dependent on the individual?
1: Well, that wasn't really what we were looking at. We were looking at it... uh, as from the point of view as a governing tool. We were looking at how effective it was as a governing tool. And in order to be effective, it has to be credible and it has to be seen to be credible and it has to be seen to be impartial. What came out of the project, certainly in terms of the qualitative data and all the analysis that I did in England of the reports was that... Um, there was there was no objectivity or there was very little objectivity and i think i think this, the the structure of the english inspectorate is very interesting because were they to be were the inspectors to be employed full time as hmi then they would be part of a community of practice of inspectors exchanging information exchanging ideas exchanging professional knowledges but because it's in such a um, dispersed system, they have loyalties to Ofsted, but they have loyalties to Cerco or Tribal or a CFBT as company people. Um, but they also have loyalties to themselves. They're self-employed contractors. And at the end of the day, when I was talking to some of them about professional development um, and you know, how do you judge teaching, etc. They said, well, actually, we don't tend to exchange information between agencies because if we have a particularly effective way of operating, then the next time that the contracts come up for renewal, that will count in our favour and it may just pit one of the other agencies at the post. So I think the... With the English system, which is very different to the Scottish system and very different, again, to the Swedish system, you have this dispersal and you have a question, a big question, over who these people are answerable to. Because if they're self-employed, at the end of the day, they're answerable only to themselves.
0: just... <laughs> As we were saying just before, I think uh, Michael Wilshaw saying that he wants to bring it all back in-house, as he did, I think, last week, uh, is, I think, particularly interesting because it goes against the grain of all the privatising, you know, trend. But one answer to my colleague here, surely, is that there is quite a strong, not a perfect, but quite a strong correlation, isn't there, between inspection judgments and the socio-economic character of the localities in which the schools are... Are, uh, you know, are situated so I, I think that within the context of a highly unequal system um, I think that's quite significant uh, yeah. and I'm sure that came out as well in your study. Well
1: there was quite mi- it was quite interesting because it was quite mixed in terms of the removal of the value added mm-hmm. since okay. the value added um, uh, criteria were removed from the data in order to level the playing field <coughs> because the inspectorate saw that as an excuse um, you would have thought that people would have found that um, quite difficult. Schools are finding it quite difficult. And some of the schools in difficult circumstances did seem to be finding it difficult, yes.
2: just <laughs> um, yeah, Talon. To pick up that point of, of Ron's, actually, um, I'm a governor in, in a totally selective area. And, and I'm a governor of an upper school, i.e. a secondary modern. Now, in the last year, most of the secondary moderns in our area have been inspected and one by one they have required improvement. Um, I've read all the inspection reports of, of each of these schools and they are all pathologized as you know individual failures. Whereas the real question to be asked is, you know, what is the impact of selection? in this whole area. Mm-hmm. And, of course, nobody is asking that question uh, except governors. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, there's a, there's a huge um, uh, predisposition to preserve the grammar schools because that is the political will of, of the area. But, um, you know, it, Ron's point is, is quite correct, mm-hmm. um, I mean, we are very resentful that, you know, for example, as, as a chair of governors or as a head teacher, we could not, we, we're not considered to be good enough uh, to do any of these tasks. Um, although, in fact, we, you know, our head teacher, for example, you know, is, is a very skilled and experienced professional doing a great job, but he can't become an inspector because his school requires improvement. So... Uh, You know, but it's all part of the bias of the system, which nobody is
1: challenging at all. No, I I don't think they are. It certainly didn't appear so, anyway. Mm. Certainly didn't appear so.
0: Can I join in? May I?
1: Well, we have to finish on ten past. I've got one for the taxis coming in. I've got my own. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, uh,
0: this is just this this is that um, version of that last round. (laughs) I don't think that in the English context, Ofsted is expected to have a view on policy. It might report on the system's efficiency as a whole, but not on the politics of policy. Scotland understands itself as reporting... People talk about holding up a mirror to the country, Mm. about... The national performance. Sweden is predominantly individualized and decontextualized. I mean, like the not value added data, Swedish school performance is not related in theory to social context. And I think there's something interesting at stake in that set of debates about national and local distributions of performance and people. Uh, and I don't know how it's ever going to get raised uh, in the present arrangements. I don't know, because I don't think there is anybody who is supposed no. to speak about it. No. And the role for speaking is important. I just wanted to catch up with the, the leaving the baggage at the door, because it's a phrase that I've also heard a lot. And it, its tension with the requirement now to recruit more uh, school leaders successful school leaders to the process of inspection, is, I think, exactly the point at which that tension is going to come into being. Because you are recruiting people who know how to run successful schools. And stopping them telling everybody else that they should do it this way will be an interesting challenge. (laughs) Particularly, and this this is direct from an interview, particularly, as somebody said, when the chief inspector is, let's put this nicely, single minded uh, about the notion that he knows how to make school improvement happen, and I think if that the single mindedness I think was not used generously uh, in that context, and I just wanted to uh, say that I'm fascinated by head teachers talking discreetly about inspection. And I think one of the things I've decided is that they use the word inconsistency Mm -hmm. as the politest way they can of referring to the peculiarity of inspection. Mm -hmm. And uh, inconsistency is a sort of vocabulary that you can have to talk politely uh, about the problems with the process. And I'm going to shut up and let Jacqueline have the last word.
1: (laughs) Well... Thank you very much, all, all of you, for coming. Um, I think it's been a fascinating morning, uh, day. Thanks very much to John, thanks to Melanie and to Andrew as well for a really different, diverse and very stimulating presentation. So thanks a lot. And a safe journey home. <laughs>